Thanks, Alyssa. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather together as a community of believers uh, in this city and in this place, Father. And we just pray that as we um, spend the next few minutes reflecting on your word, God, that, that these words that were just read, the words that we're going to reflect on, would not just be words on a page or stories from the past, but we would see how they deeply impact our lives and shape who we are. The only way that happens in our hearts, God, is if your Holy Spirit shows up. So we pray for his presence, and we pray for his working as we meditate on your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, the, the story that we read this morning has always been one of my long favorite stories, um, and it's a powerful story. One of the most probably vivid and powerful expressions of the love of God, or love for God, in, in all of the scriptures. But I think a lot of it has to do uh, about this idea of reputation. I'd, li- I'd like to look at the passage from a, a certain point of view this morning. And I'd like for you to think a moment before we just launch into it. I'd like you to think for a moment about your reputation for a minute. I don't know if you ever sit here and think about it. Think about your reputation. Think about what people think about when they think about you. When they reflect about you, when they look at your Facebook page or follow you on social media or run into you in the store, what do people really think about you? Because the truth is, reputation and, and what people think about us really is kind of a very important thing. It's something that we care very deep, deeply about, and actually we spend hours managing and thinking about our reputation every day. A lot of times our reputation determines kind of or how we want our reputation to be determines how we talk. It determines how we act. Often it determines how we dress. It affects a lot of things. And we spend so much time thinking and reflecting on our reputation because we know just how fragile it can be at times. Entire companies are built around helping other companies manage and shape their reputations, how people perceive them how people really think about them. Here in Baltimore, whenever I think of reputation, I think of uh, Ray Lewis, who at the very beginning of his career had a, quite a reputation hit, right? For, but for his, the majority of his career in Baltimore, most people in Baltimore didn't even think about that stuff that had happened in his past. But whenever the Ravens got on national television, the national media would bring up this sort of thing that happened 20 years in Ray Lewis's past. It was a part of his reputation that followed him everywhere. And actually, if you notice during the Ravens Super Bowl run, any time Ray Lewis got in front of a microphone, there was a man that was standing behind him. And what I've come to find out is that he was kind of the reputation gatekeeper for Ray Lewis. If Ray talked too much, he would whisper in Ray's ear. He would shuffle Ray to this interview and that interview and kind of coach Ray before he went before an interview so that Ray wouldn't blow it, that he wouldn't blow his reputation that he'd worked so hard to really recover from. And often a lot of professional athletes kind of have these reputation coaches that follow them all over. So people care very much about their reputation in sports, but it's not just sports. It's in business. It's in economics. It's in churches. It's in Hollywood. It's everywhere. Everybody is concerned deeply about their reputation. If you've been listening to the radio, there's a new company out there called Reputation.com, and their goal is to protect you from Google death. Now, I didn't know what Google death was. 
But apparently Google Death is if you get on the internet and you search your name or the name of your company, if all sorts of bad reputation things come up, it spells Google Death for you. So here this company called Reputation.com comes in and helps you with your internet reputation. And we all know that's actually kind of important. Warren Buffett said that it takes 20 years to build a reputation and only five minutes to ruin it. Benjamin Franklin said the same thing when he said it takes many good deeds to build a good reputation and only one bad one to lose it. The passage that we've read this morning, there's, three, there's really three characters in our passage this morning. And what I'd like to do is look at each one of them in terms of this idea of reputation. And the first was a Pharisee. You've, you hear about the Pharisee uh, initially in the story. A Pharisee was a person who would be considered in Jesus' day to be one of the religious elite. They were a class of priests that were largely in charge not only of just teaching the law but being experts in the law. They would make sure that everyone was carefully following the scruples and the very letter of the ancient law that was passed down from generation to generation. They were not only concerned with the written law, but also the oral law that would be passed down. They were the people that were concerned most with the exactness and the specificity of the law, and their reputation was a very high reputation of religious piety. They were revered by their culture, they were respected, and they were venerated. And this Pharisee, the Pharisee in our story, no doubt had heard about Jesus. He'd heard that Jesus was coming into a town, so he wanted to invite Jesus over for a meal to see what this Jesus that he'd heard about is all about. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? It was an opportunity to test who Jesus claimed to be. The Pharisee, no doubt, was wondering, could this Jesus really, is he, is he some sort of special prophet? Or is he actually the Messiah who he claims to be? Who is this person, Jesus? And initially, whenever you see Jesus interacting with these Pharisees, you see him all throughout the Gospels. Whenever you see them interacting with Jesus, you see at the very beginning of Jesus' career, they were kind of weighing Jesus. They wanted to test him. Because after all, if Jesus was a Pharisee, or if Jesus was a prophet, then that was really important for the Pharisees. That would help them in their reputation to get on Jesus' good side. But as Jesus began to teach more and more who he was, you learn throughout the Gospel of Luke that that kind of passive interest or that weighing all of a sudden turns turns into an attempt to kill him. One they, they eventually succeed in. You know, the truth is the the Pharisees were really concerned about their reputation, and they were weighing whether Jesus could really further their reputation, and we do this all the time. We think about our own reputation, we think, well, if, if we associate ourselves with these people, or we associate ourselves with that, that may help our reputation or build our reputation. So we're no different than they are. We're concerned about our reputation just as much as they were. The second character is the woman of the story. And whenever I read this story, I always think of Nathaniel Hawthorne's work, The Scarlet Letter. If you've ever read The Scarlet Letter, if you read it 20 years ago when you were in school, The Scarlet Letter is about a woman named Hester who is caught in the middle of adultery. She shows up pregnant by someone who's not her husband, 
and it's in 17th century Puritan Boston. So what they did in the story is because she was caught in this sin of adultery, she had to wear a red A on her chest at all times. She would have to actually bear a physical reminder of her sin, a physical reminder of her shame, and a reminder of her scorn. You know, the woman in our story is not all that different than the character Hester in the Scarlet Letter. But in terms of reputation, she was very, very different than the Pharisees. The scriptures call her a woman of the city, which is kind of an interesting term for all you women that live here in Baltimore City. Uh, But the scriptures call her a woman of the city, and what that essentially meant is that she was a woman of probably very gross immorality. And if you look at the Greek, that's what it's trying to communicate, that she was a woman that was uh, a a very well-known sinner. She She bore the shame of that sin all the time. Most uh, commentators believe that she was a prostitute and actually a very active one. So that whenever she entered the room or entered the door or anybody passed her on the street, her reputation throughout town and throughout the city was one of a sinner. And she had to bear the shame of that. She had to bear the shame of her lifestyle and her sin and her reputation was no doubt tarnished by her lifestyle. Now, you often, now, when I often thought about this, I wondered, how did this woman get in the home of this Pharisee? How did this woman, who had such a terribly low reputation, wind up in the home of someone with such a high reputation? But there was a social custom back in Jesus' day that whenever somebody had one of these feasts or they had one of these gatherings, they would allow people from the street who, of, who were of less reputation or of great need homeless beggars, orphans, widows, sinners, would be allowed to enter into these feasts and sometimes actually eat from the scraps of the feast, but they had to stay in the periphery of the room. They had to stay in the margins. They had to stay out of the way. They had to know their place as social outcasts, and they had to stay in their place as social outcasts. But we know from the story that this woman was not content to stay in the periphery of the room when Jesus was was there. For whatever reason, she felt like she had nothing to lose, so she she breaks social custom, she leaves the corner of the room, and she, she moves herself in the center. And the scriptures tell us as she does this, she begins to weep. She begins to cry uncontrollably about her life, and she begins to clean Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair, but she's not finished even in that incredible act. The scriptures say she takes a jar of alabaster ointment, and this jar would be used for burials, it'd be used for coronation of kings, it'd be used for all sorts of different things in their culture, but we know she breaks that jar and the perfume smells up the whole room. But the jar was, was no doubt her most prized possessions. The scriptures say it was worth a certain amount of money. And we know that that certain amount of money was probably worth an entire year's wage. So just imagine all that you make in one year being spent in one moment to demonstrate your affection for another person. That's what this woman did. It was most likely her most prized possession. It was the greatest thing of value that she had ever owned, and she decided to use it as a powerful display of, a, an effect, of affection, and she spent it all on Jesus. The third character of the story is, of course, Jesus himself. 
Jesus, no doubt, in this situation was probably tempted to care a lot about his reputation. After all, he's now being invited into the home of a religious elite. If it was Jesus' intention to climb the social ladder, this was a great opportunity to do it. It was a great opportunity to hang out with the right people and begin to build his reputation. But this wasn't the first time Jesus had been tempted to build his reputation. We know from Luke chapter 4 that even in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus to build his own reputation. But you see in Jesus not so much a very strong concern for his own reputation. He knew that his path had to be different. He knew that his path would involve rejection, and he had to walk down that path. In that moment, Jesus could have shunned the woman. He could have turned her away. But instead, what he does is he receives this beautiful gift of her affection. You see, he had an opportunity to cater to the religious elite or to accept the irreligious. And and what he chose to do in that moment was without hesitation to embrace the irreligious, to embrace the sinful outcast in the middle of her mess, and communicate the grace and forgiveness that comes from the gospel. And we know because of that, that day, that woman experienced the peace, the forgiveness, and the joy that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. No longer did she have to be weighed down by her sin and her horrible reputation. It no longer had to be a burden for her. As we've looked at the, at the gospel of Luke the past five or, five or six weeks, however long it's been, we've noticed that Luke is inevitably drawing us to one very important question. His number one objective is to communicate to his readers and to us today that Jesus, who Jesus was and what he came to do. And inevitably, as you read through the book of Luke, you see some accept him and some reject him. But as you read through the book, you notice a pattern begins to emerge. And that pattern is that the religious folks, the folks with the greatest of reputations, the folks that had built a very uh, good resume, had, had, had things really working for them in life, those that, that, that were climbing the social ladder and doing well tended to reject Jesus. But the ir- irreligious, the immoral, the sinners... The outcasts, those that were on the periphery and the margins of society, found peace and joy in a relationship with him. But I think an even bigger question emerges when we read this passage. I think any time when we read passages like this, or we even see this in culture, when we see these most beautiful and vivid demonstrations of love, whether it's in the scriptures or whether it's in a great romantic comedy that's out there or a great book that we've read, whenever we see this sort of passion, whenever we see this sort of joy, whenever we see this sort of kind of abandon because of love, we tend to revere it and we tend to be jealous of it. We tend to want it for ourselves. And as I've read this passage throughout my own faith journey, I've thought so often, how do I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, experience this sort of love? How could this sort of love that moved this woman to do this incredible act of love, how could that be true of me and in my own heart? How do I get this radical, life-changing, life-altering love? Because if I'm honest with myself, a lot of times my passion and, ref- and, and affection for God tends to be half-hearted. So when part of me looks at this woman and says, how do I get this? How do I get this love for Christ? This week I had an opportunity to, um, 
uh, to uh, lead a, a, a Bible discussion uh, with, a, with about 10 or, so, 10 or 15 high school uh, young men at a very prestigious private school right around the corner here in Baltimore. And uh, I get to do this pretty often. It's a great opportunity for me to do it. And the young men are real sharp and they're really impressive uh, because they go to one of the best academic institutions in all, of, in all of the city and probably all of the nation for that matter. So these are sharp guys. And uh, one of the things I did to them, I did, an ob- I did with them this week, is I did an object lesson based on this passage. And I walked in and I put $2 on the table in front of all these young men. And I said, now, what would you be willing to do for, these, for this $2? I said, tell me, what would you be willing to do for this $2? What crazy, silly thing would you be able to do? And I got a couple of answers back, but most of them said, you know, there's not much, it's only two bucks. There's not much I'm going to be really willing to do for two bucks. Because the truth is, now I don't want to kind of pigeonhole this school and said every kid that goes to this school comes from, you know, affluence. But the truth is, probably most of them sitting there had probably 40 bucks in their wallet. And they probably drove to school in a car that's nicer than my own. Right? These high school kids. You see, their need for that $2 was not very great. But say I'd done this in another neighborhood in Baltimore City where most of the kids come to school not having had breakfast and are wondering where their lunch is going to come from and are wondering how they're going to pay their BG&E bill or or wondering where their next meal is going to come from or how they're going to find clothes to wear on their back, I'm willing to bet that their willingness to do things for that $2 is going to be much greater than the kid that comes from that affluent school. And the question is why. Why? Because their, their, their need is greater And the perception of their need is greater too. And I think the truth is that the truth of that is no different than the truth in our story. Because here's what the gospel tells us. Just a few things that the gospel tells us. The first thing is we will never truly appreciate the grace of God until we first come to terms with our need for him. We will never truly appreciate the depth of God's grace in our lives until we realize just how precious and how desperately we need him. Can I tell you a secret? This is a kind of a moment of of confession and self-reflection for you. Uh, When I've ever looked at this passage, I've thought thought of myself more in terms of the Pharisee than I have thought of myself in terms of the sinner. And the truth is, that's because I think down deep, if I'm really honest with myself, I'm I'm kind of a self-righteous person. I can take anything and make it a means of my own self-righteousness. And let me give you an an example of that. Many of you know that I like to run. It's a a joy in my life. It's something I like to do. But even the the very practice of me running can be a means for me to be self-justified. You know, if there's one week where I sit, I run three days a week, I think, man, I've, I've done good this week. And there's nothing wrong with being satisfied and doing good this week, but it immediately goes to, man, if more people couldn't just run three days a week, this world would be better. You know, this week I I had an apple every day. I'm not kidding. That's not just an illustration. I literally had an apple every day. And I can think about, I I thought one day, listen, I, I had an apple four days in a row. And man, I'm feeling good about myself. If only more people in this world 
would eat an apple every day, this world would be a better place. You see, I can take anything, any good thing, and make it into a means to justify my own righteousness and to make me feel better than other people. I can even do it with our church. I can think we have a church, we've got a great mission, we've got a great vision, we've got a great heart for Baltimore City. And it's a beautiful thing that God's given us, but I can immediately make it say, well, that's, we're just better than everybody else because we have this great mission and this great vision. Every good thing I, my, my sinful heart can take and distort into a means of self-righteousness. And the truth is, you're probably in the same boat I am. Facebook is a great way to do this. It's a great way to look at other people's lives and in judgment and think, wow, I'm I'm not that bad, or I'm just a little bit better here, or just a little bit better. We are self-righteous machines. It is our default setting, and what gets so dangerous about that is that our own sense of self-righteousness makes us the Pharisee in the story. Because we are, we are concerned more about our own righteousness and our own reputation than any other thing. And our self-righteousness and being, being captured by our own self-righteousness distracts us from too, truly grasping our need for Jesus. You see, our reputation seeking is not a bad thing. You know, it's just kind of part of our DNA as people to want to be well thought of of other people. But when it becomes dangerous is when we become believing our own publicity and we become distracted about our own spiritual bankruptcy. The second thing that we need to know about the gospel is this. When we never truly grasp our need for Christ, then we will only ever experience half-hearted affections about Jesus. If we only kind of grasp our sin, then we're only going to kind of love Jesus. The question you need to ask yourself, it's a real simple question. When you sit here this morning and as you reflect on your life, do you consider yourself to be a little sinner? Or do you consider yourself to be a big sinner? Because how you answer that question will reflect your own affection for Jesus Christ. I know it's an overgeneralization. I know it's an oversimplified question. But it speaks to something profound. Because if you don't think that you have very much to be forgiven of, then you won't cherish God's forgiveness all that much. And of course, this is what Jesus was hinting at in our parable. The third and last thing that Jesus says about the gospel here is this. That all this is why we as believers, why we as followers of Jesus Christ, need to remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel every day. And in some ways, it's why we never can forget about the cross of Jesus Christ. Because when we think about the cross of Jesus Christ, we reflect on the sacrifice that he made for us on our behalf on that, on that cross. And we have to honestly reflect about what it is that put him on that cross. You see, at the foot of the cross, there's no room for our resume. At the foot of the cross, there's no room for our reputation. There's no room for our own good deeds. But by faith, we come to terms with the fact that we and our sin is what put him on that cross. We see that God himself sacrificed himself on our behalf 
so that we can be forgiven of our sins. We see that not only did he give up his reputation, not only did he walk the path of rejection, but he gave up his own body on the cross on our behalf. Martin Luther, who was a famous reformer uh, in his theology of the cross, which he wrote a ton about, essentially says that as believers of Jesus Christ, we need to constantly put ourselves at the foot of the cross and constantly live in light of what Christ has done for us. And Martin Luther did that so powerfully on, in, in his own life that his very last words in, this, in, in life he scribbled on a piece of paper. And those last words were, we are beggars, this is true. We are beggars, this is true. Because if you constantly put yourself at the foot of the cross, you recognize just how much you needed the sacrifice that he made on your behalf. But the cross doesn't want us to perpetually be crushed by our sin. It doesn't want us to perpetually be weighed down and burdened by our sin. But it draws us to Christ and it draws us to his love and his affection for us and our own forgiveness. Because the cross tells us by faith we can receive that gift of grace that he offers to us. So the question that Luke posed to his writers when he penned the Gospel of Luke is the same question that you and I have to deal with in our own hearts here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you struggle, just like I do, with your own self-righteousness. But the truth is, you probably are more in touch with the fact that you struggle with very weak and half-hearted affections towards Jesus. You, like me, are good at playing the self-righteous game, and and that's worked really well for you at a very functional level. But you yearn to love Christ in a way that this woman loved him. The gospel message to you and I that struggle with our own self-righteousness, our own pride, our own weak affections for Jesus is to look to the cross and reflect anew and afresh at what put him there. But maybe you're here this morning and you feel more like you relate to the woman in the story and not so much the Pharisee. You sit here and you feel overcome by your past mistakes your past indiscretions, and you, you bear the shame of them, and you wish that you could be freed from the burden of your sin. You're overcome with your inadequacies and the ways you just don't feel like you measure up. And you really wonder if God could ever love you considering what you've done in your own life. Remember, as one person said, no hole is too deep for the reach of God's compassionate hand. And it's that very truth that that woman learned so powerfully in her encounter with Jesus in our story. But the truth is, the gospel for all of us who are sitting here, the gospel message is for the same, that Christ beckons us to flee to him and embrace him by faith so that we can experience the joy and the love that comes from a relationship with him.